Still, and this is the Digital Health Digital Capitalism Podcast. Hi, this is the sixth episode of the Digital Health Digital Capitalism Podcast, so welcome back. In this episode, I'm talking to Liz McFall, who I'll introduce in a moment, but I think her work is really interesting because it shows how something quite seemingly mundane, like insurance, has a really profound impact, not just on how markets work, but on our identities and our social lives and the relationship between these things she uh, shows us in some quite surprising and interesting ways, I think. Towards the end of this episode, you'll hear my doorbell ringing in the background. Um, Sorry about that, I couldn't avoid this um, and I couldn't really cut it out because of how the discussion was going at that time, but hopefully it's not too distracting. Um, Also, as usual, it'd be great if you would like to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or wherever else you get the podcasts from. Okay, so now I'm talking to uh, Liz McFall, who is a senior lecturer at the Open University and also the editor of the Journal of Cultural Economy. Uh, So, hi Liz. Hi Chris. Thanks for uh, talking to me today. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. Yeah, me too. Any chance to talk about insurance is always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, this is it as well, um, because obviously I've I've read your work and seen you speak uh, a few times, and... um, uh, insurance might not be um, uh, for everyone something that they think, oh, that'd be a really exciting thing to read about. But for me, um, how your writings and uh, and your talks really uh, brings out what is kind of fascinating and what is really sort of sociological about um, um, about insurance. And um, I think your your kind of perspective on it that it's actually it's really something quite integral to how we see society is really is really interesting. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I, I make a number of slightly glib remarks about that. <laughs> what, 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 one, of the, one of them is to say that insurance is society. <laughs> um, so how can a sociologist... Sociologists neglect insurance. It, it, it's not a big... Most of the people I know well who study insurance are historians, actually. Yes. I mean, and geographers. But sociologists right. generally don't see it as a significant topic which mm. obviously I think is a mistake yeah absolutely but, I mean it's something that has um had a big impact um on our kind of social imagination and just how we how we think about ourselves and how, how we think about society even if it's not necessarily at the forefront of those things that we think about as being really fundamental um social things such as uh, our identities around gender or social class and this kind of thing but it's actually something p- people will live with every day of their lives really absolutely in the way that insurance spreads risks across Mm. a society is entirely endemically patterned by the shape of social divisions at any given time yeah ethnicity religion uh gender of course age Mm. disability all those things are, are in how insurance manages risk. And you can find out a huge amount about a society by by looking at those fairly dull technical matters of risk classification. Mm. 
That's right. So um, just a little bit about your your kind of history. So you've done most of your work um, in insurance, um, but more recently, specifically been looking into health insurance and into um, the relationships between big data and, and insurance and health insurance. Uh, would that be right? Yeah, that's about right. I actually started my academic career looking at historical promotion practices. So, so my PhD was on advertising, um, historically, looking at how advertising, the practices of advertising had emerged historically, and that bled into a broader interest into how markets are made. And what started to really interest me after my PhD was looking at how difficult markets were made. You know, yeah. a lot of sociologists of consumption and promotion had spent a lot of time talking about the marketing of Nike. Um, and companies like that. But I began following people like Alan Ward, I suppose, um, to, to start looking at the advertising for uh, the advertising and market making activities for products that are not exciting because that's a much more interesting social problem. It's easy enough to manufacture desire for a shiny Apple Mac book or um, a new pair of sneakers. To manufacture desire and mm. attachment to an insurance policy, which is something you may never need, which is expensive, which is technical, mm. that seemed to me a much more fascinating social problem. Yeah. And it, it relates absolutely to um, the social settlement, state policy. Yep. Insura- insurance is a very malleable technology. Um, it can be used for collective, altruistic, social purposes, and equally it can be used for the extraction of private value. Um, and most often it's somewhere between the two. Yeah. Um, and that, so this is what I mean when I talk about insurance being a very sociological problem. Mm. Now, when I started to study insurance in depth, and it's always been really life insurance, a little bit of health insurance, I haven't really looked at property and casualty insurance. Mm. Um, I became struck by, by the way it kind of weaved in and out of policy and in and out of private market making. And also struck by the way insurance mobilized data Mm. to to classify risk. So what I looked at initially was the sort of first 200 years or so of health insurance. And eventually I started focusing specifically on a form of insurance that was targeted at the poor, which is industrial life insurance. Mm. And the, the interesting connection between that and what has become a more recent interest, interest in big data is to do with the fact that industrial life insurance was an absolutely massive market. Mm-hmm. By, 19, by the 1940s, there was over 60 million industrial life insurance policies in existence in the UK. And so were they, uh, were they paid for by workers? or were Workers. They pay- yeah. Uh, absolutely. There's a kind of close intersection between the NHS formation and the industrial life insurance industry. Mm. The industrial life insurance industry has a, 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 an interesting history that I won't spend much time on. No. Um, but it's intriguing in the sense that if it, if it started in about eight, the 1850s and continues, it doesn't start to decline until the 1980s. Well, terminally decline until the 1980s. Mm. And during that period of time, 
lower middle classes and the poor, particularly, were the market segments it, it, it was promoted to. And that means that the industrial life insurance industry had to come up with machinery to handle vast amounts of data in advance of what we um, can loosely describe as information technology. Yeah. You know, people would argue that there, there were various forms of tabulating machines from early in the 20th century. So to describe insurance as a pre-computer industry isn't quite right, but mm. certainly as a pre-digital industry. But nevertheless, they were handling vast data sets. So very briefly, industrial life insurance worked by collecting pennies on a weekly basis, door to door from workers. Mm. So that means there were tens of thousands of agents in the country collecting small amounts on a weekly basis, sending them to branch office and sending them to head office, where every policy, every premium, every missed premium had to be tabulated and recorded and repeated. So that is a big data enterprise in a lot of ways. And it's a big data enterprise, not just because of the quantity of data, but because of the need to um, make relationships between different aspects of the data. Um, and and I, st I studied how the industry handled that. And I, I, I found that kind of fascinating. But when I finished work on that, um, which was about 2013, 2014, and I finished writing a, a, a book which focused on explaining what was going on there. It was yeah. around about the time that the Affordable Care Act was coming into operation in the US, and mm -hmm. I had a, a month there. And what struck me immediately was this attempt to change the conversation about how insurance um, functioned in the US, health insurance functioned in the US. And that, that seemed to me a very interesting exercise because it was kind of a digital exercise. And you started to see companies appearing like Oscar Health, who were issuing a free wearable with their policies. And I thought there was something intriguing going on there. On the one hand, you have insurance companies trying to establish a market in this new space um, using social media for promotion, which right. is quite a new thing yeah. for insurance companies to do. Um, and also, at the same time, picking up on these digital technologies. So the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, um, Obamacare as it's more popularly known, um, establishes a brand new market. And it's a brand new market that's not quite the same as the industrial life insurance market because it's not really targeted at the very poor. It's targeted at people who are not poor enough to qualify um, for, for Medicaid, which is really very poor in the US. Yeah. Um, I suppose <laughs> if you were looking for a comparison, you'd use that odious phrase, hard-working American families, <laughs> hard-working British families. Yeah. So hard-working American families, particularly those who don't have a job in which they're covered by group or employer insurance yeah. um, and, are, and are struggling and they can't quite afford it. So it's an attempt to make a new market on more of a collective basis. Um, and big data it turns out it's very important how that was going to be done. So I uh, began to be fascinated by what was a completely new field for me because I had been primarily studying the, the market making of insurance 
for deaf people. You know, the, yep. the industrial life insurance industry ended in the 1980s largely. Mm. It was a slow death, but it largely ended then. Um, so I'd never really had to study a market that was moving as quickly as health insurance. So was that, was that effectively creating a new, a new group um, to be insured? It, well, the, the group had existed, but if, if you like, what it was doing was trying to correct a, a market that had failed. Right. A market that was, you know, uh, if you start from the basis that insurance is a product, it's about buying your future security. Mm. People who are struggling to meet their present needs will tend to put off mm. um, investing in their future security. So up until Obamacare came into operation in 2014, most people, the huge bulk of the uninsured in America were people who could buy individual health insurance policies but didn't because they were expensive. Um, so they didn't tend to buy them. But there was also another significant problem, which is if those people were already ill, um, already had a health history, which is most people, but if they had a pre-existing condition, insurers would either refuse to cover them, which they were allowed to do, or they would charge them an extremely expensive price for covering them. And what Obamacare effectively does is it makes a correction into that market space by saying to insurers, you can no longer refuse or price people who have a pre-existing condition. And in order to make um, people willing to pay for the insurance it it did two things one was the issuing of a federal subsidy so people would um get support to pay for the life insurance the health insurance sorry um and the other was called the individual mandate which requires people to buy insurance before they're sick yeah um and that individual mandate for america turned out to be the most controversial aspect of the Affordable Care Act. Fundamentally, the Affordable Care Act tries to do a more social insurance type cost sharing whilst using a private health insurance market mechanism. But it tries to kind of share the costs more across people who are, um, well, across the whole population, really, because through taxes, everyone is paying to support um, this scheme. And the America's wonderful example of exceptionalism, because this is this, this is this idea is controversial even amongst those who stand to benefit most from it. But this is it. I mean, I've read things recently about about there being quite a bit of, uh, with some people confusion um, and an actual uh, uh, some kind of assumption that the Affordable Care Act is something different to Obamacare. Um, yes. Um, and uh, so, uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Oh, yeah, that sounds okay. But Obamacare is this is this really awful thing. Um, do you? I, do, I just wonder because obviously we're we're speaking. Uh, this will go out in uh, probably in a few weeks' time. But we're speaking a couple of days after the inauguration of Donald Trump, and one of the main things which uh, main aspects of his sort of promises, which he seems like he probably is going to be following through on, is to be either repealing or getting rid of or massively changing the Affordable Care Act. Do you have any sense or insight into uh, what, what or, or just prediction of what that what that might be or what that could look like? 
Oh, um, look, it's an absolutely fascinating, evolving story. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's a complicated story, and it's complicated for all sorts of different reasons. So what's been talked about at present is repeal and delay. Because it took, the Affordable Care Act came into operation in 2014. It was passed into law in 2010, and it was debated from the very start of Obama's presidency. So it took six years between Obama taking office and the act coming into operation. And during that time, many of the provisions of the act were systematically weakened, particularly including the individual mandate. Because the individual mandate, which um, compels people to buy insurance, is considered to be, by many people, particularly, of course, on the Republican side, to be un-American. Yeah. You can't um, mandate for people to do what's good for them. So the individual mandate was compared to broccoli. The state has no business to tell people to eat broccoli. Um, so that proved extremely controversial and when it came into um, effect, the individual mandate was weak. You know, it's much cheaper to pay the fine than it was to buy the health insurance, even if you were entitled to subsidy. Um, so the Affordable Care Act ended up having lots of flaws. And some of those flaws are due to uh, political compromises that were made just to get the act through. You know, I yeah. was in, in, in the States during the federal shutdown. And th th this, is, this is just a bizarre um, thing. Well, at the time it seemed bizarre, but <laughs> in the context we are currently <laughs> um, doing business and nothing seems bizarre anymore. Uh, um, but the, the whole country shut down over deadlock um, around the Affordable Care Act. And this just, why, why would a policy designed to relieve what was not just a slightly failing market, it was a terrible, terrible state of affairs where something like 40 million Americans had no health coverage, which meant that if they, if they got sick, they would die or go bankrupt or both. Mm. You know, care would be provided, but they would be billed and pursued for, for that care. So, so bankruptcy, the biggest cause of bankruptcy in the States in the run-up to the ACA being in operation was medical costs. It's the biggest cause of personal bankruptcy. So, we now find ourselves in an interesting time where Donald Trump is um, saying we can re we can repeal and delay because in recognition of the fact that it's going to take quite a long time to come up with a workable alternative. Right. Um, and one of the things that the Trump administration is likely to not have is the individual mandate because of um, it not fitting with a Republican ethos to compel people to do anything. Um, yeah. However, repealing and delaying is very strange because the act is this kind of fascinating compromise of bringing the state and the private sector together in this kind of really <laughs> strange algebra. If you repeal and delay, why would insurers in the marketplace that is already struggling. You know, insurers are losing money in this marketplace already. Yeah. Would they, how are they going to stay in that marketplace 
whilst the Trump administration figures out its alternative. And mm. the logic of insurance basically goes, you need a big pool to spread risk. Mm. And the people, um, adverse selection works like this. Adverse selection is a well-known insurance problem. It works like this, that if you perceive yourself most likely to be risked, you're most likely to want insurance. Yeah. If you think you're very, very healthy and robust and you're going to live forever, the young invincibles, young people yeah, who have yeah. no health and health conditions, you're probably unlikely to want to buy insurance. You want to spend your money on, well, having fun, drinking beer, yeah, all those unhealthy things. Um, so how do you get those people to buy insurance? You, you have to compel them to buy insurance. But the Trump administration doesn't want to compel anyone to do anything. Um, therefore, they're most likely not to have an individual mandate, which means that you're most likely going to have a pool of sick and very expensive people. Mm-hmm. So there's all these contradictions in, in the Trump administration's plans. And it's a, it, there's a fascinating side story to this. One of the few new companies that was established to operate in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces is called Oscar Health. And Oscar Health was established, was started by three people, one of whom is Joshua Kushner. Joshua Kushner is the brother-in-law of Jared Kushner, who's married to Ivanka Trump and is a key advisor of of Donald Trump. Um, So there's this weird internecine family (laughs) tension and that follows the le- lines of capital as well, because Peter Thiel is one of the big investors in Oscar yep. Health right. and also one of the key advisors to the Trump administration. Um, oh, God. So, so the <laughs> political and personal kinship yep. um, uh, tensions here. So, yeah, I think it's a very peculiar algebra. Mm. I'm, I, I'm laughing, but I actually find the, the situation deeply troubling um, because this is this is not it's not a trivial matter in the UK we know if we get sick we may have to wait um, the NHS in the UK has received a huge amount of bad publicity over the last few months over the winter yeah. underfunding is a major problem but we simply are not in a position that People in this market space would be in the in in the US, no. um, who who will go bankrupt with it without adequate cover, without affordable cover. I mean, what are you going to do if your insurance premium is going to cost you ten thousand dollars a year and you earn sixteen thousand dollars a year? Mm. You know, it, it is it is a real and pressing mm. ma- major social. Um, challenge ahead um so oh yeah i will be watching it <laughs> well no exactly no that's really fascinating and it, yeah, it helps me to understand it a bit better but also i think that those kind of um interconnections uh, between those people that you just mentioned um shows up the connections between politics and uh, sort of business big business um and the technology as well, you know, with Teal and, and Kushner and obviously the Trump family and this kind of thing and, and how those things are 
are kind of uh, seemingly in- increasingly interconnected um, yeah. in various ways. Um, where you can see that's kind of Washington and um, Washington, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley, maybe. Um, and, and we saw that kind of thing with one of the first big meetings um, that Trump had after being elected was with all the heads of big tech companies. Uh, so obviously, they you know they're not too squeamish about um, trying to get get on the good side of that. Um, but um, I wondered if you could uh, say a little bit about what role you think... Um, sp- so you talked about how it was kind of big data even uh, of a sort, even in the early early days of insurance. Um, could you say something about what you think is, is, is new or is changing now? Um, has there been a, any kind of, uh, kind of transformative impact of big data... Um, on on how insurance, uh, particularly health insurance, is uh, is functioning. Well, th- this is a really interesting um, question because the the big debate um, here centres on the question of personalisation of price. Yeah. And the connections between the affordances of big data and Internet of Things devices, notably in health insurance wearables. Um, activity tracking wearables. So the interconnections between between big data sets, wearables, and the capacity to personalise price. So the concern that a number of people have been expressing over the la- a number of scholars have been expressing over the last four years or so um, is that they, you mobilise Internet of Things big data together, you've got these data streams in real time telling you what people are doing, how much they're moving, potentially what they're eating, uh, where they're going, when they're going there. And the idea that this level of personal individual surveillance Mm. can be converted into decisions about pricing and access. So if you... In the 90s, um, insurers used to ask whether you had an HIV test, you know, as quite a personal and invasive question. And if you said yes, you'd had an HIV test, that would also up your premium price in life insurance um, because the very fact that you were concerned about HIV enough to have a test meant um, that you, you were a risk as far as the insurers were concerned. But you could lie. They're not going to check. No. But now, with this level of surveillance, the concern is very much that, that you can't decide and control what information you disclose and don't disclose. Um, that the insurer will have a real-time data feed gathered from all sorts of things, not just wearables and activity trackers, which um, my research has focused on primarily, but also your posts on social media, what you said on Facebook, where your Insta- what your Instagram pictures depict you doing um, so that 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 is a real and genuine concern and it's on un, it's unsurprising that that's had quite a bit of um, media coverage but also quite a bit of scrutiny in the scholarly literature but most of that scrutiny has come from um, the big data end rather than from the insurance end yes so so people who uh, know a great deal about how big data works and what it might be able to do 
have written about this. But people who know a great deal about insurance have tended not to write about it. I've found very little. Mm. There's there's starting to be an emerging literature there, but there's very little that's that's coming at this problem from this very kind of, it's it's part of what we started talking about. The mundane Mm. technical nature of insurance means that social theorists generally have not paid that much attention to it. Um, So uh, a a kind of technical empirical understanding of how insurance works hasn't tended to inform either media attention or I would say, and I'm not sure if this is unfair or not, but this is my impression, Mm. um, the scholarly literature. I wonder if I, I wouldn't know why that is, but it seems to me there's, there's an element of which it, there is quite a big continuation from previous practices. And like you said, they would previously ask ask various questions and try to get this kind of the um, this quite broad social uh, lifestyle data about people. But the the their means for doing it were fairly limited, um, and obviously. In theory, if they're if they're they're uh, gleaning data from, like you say, from social media posts or from the use of wearable uh, devices and things like this, um, there is a, a potential that um, they're able to just automatically collect this data. Um, but will they will they take that data as being? Will they assume it as being reliable? Do you think? Well, that, that this is the difficulty. Um, so there, are, I think I think one of the issues is that certain kinds of category confusion tend to take place. So one thing that's certainly the case is that you are already starting to see instances of social media data being used in legal cases around insurance. So if you've insured yourself as a non-smoker, for example, and there are social media posts easily available. Underwriters may well look at those posts that show 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 the claimant smoking uh, and, and the policy won't get paid out. There's nothing new about that. This is entirely consistent with um, long practices in insurance. Of when there's a claim, it, it may well be investigated and if the social media is a source that will be investigated against those claims. Now, that is one thing and I think that kind of level, that sort of what you could call phenotype data, the digital exhaustive data that we all now leave everywhere just by living our daily lives, can certainly be scooped up by insurers in terms of uh, settling claims or refusing to settle claims. But the question about price personalization is rather more specific than that. That is about saying the decisions about your access to and the cost you will have to pay will be based on this level of big data surveillance. Um, My understanding of that at this point in time is that we are a long way away from being able to do that and not because insurers are public spirited. That's not the reason. The reason is rather more complicated and it goes to the infrastructures of insurance and how risk is classified and how it's priced and how, if you think about pipelines, you know, how do you connect 
all these different data mm. sources together and put them into the types of infrastructures, pricing infrastructures that the insurers use, it's a bit apples and oranges. They're mm. different things. They are not commensurate. Um, and it's not that they couldn't be made commensurate. It's just that they're not there yet. It's a long, there's a long um, passage to travel before you get there. And there's a number of obstacles. So if you start just by focusing on the example of wearable data, which is one of the things that's had a lot of coverage, mm. that your, you know, your wearable data could be used in real time and fed to your health insurer to alter the price of your health insurance. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. And one of the problems starts just from the relationship between the wearable and the person wearing it. Wearables are, at the, this point in time, quite an unstable technology. It's unclear whether we'll still be talking about them. Except, I, I mean specifically um, self-tracking, activity tracking wearables like yeah. Fitbit. Um, it's unclear whether they will stick. They've already, you know, there's, they have a high discard rate. People wear them for a couple of months and then put them in a drawer. Um, there is, you, you ask the question about, is the data reliable? There's huge questions about how reliable the data is in all sorts of different ways. Um, the data doesn't necessarily map onto clear clinical standards that, um, Define health risk. Uh, so clinicians disagree about how many steps you should take, how many how many steps a different sorts of individuals should take. Should a twenty year old male be taking a different number of steps than a seventy year old female um, with health conditions? You can start to imagine the level of um, variation around any kind of clinical or epidemiological sense about health risk as it applies to individuals, as it applies to a self-tracking device that basically is converting, using an algorithm to convert accelerometer data about the intensity of movement into steps. Um, this is, you know, there's a huge amount of steps involved there. There's also the question of uh, how can you be sure that the data is coming from the person you've insured. Could they have given it? Could they have given their Fitbit to an athletic friend? Mm. You know that that's quite possible. What about the activities that people do that aren't well tracked by wearable trackers? Um, and the big, really structural problem is that most techniques that are concerned with quantifying health risk do it across populations, they don't do it at an individual level. And you will, you know, there's an epidemiologist called George Davy Smith who argues that you, you cannot, you simply cannot um, quantify health risk at an individual level. Health risk is a, yeah. is a figure you can come up with across a population. So this may make sense in terms of everyone knows a 90-year-old or knows of a 90-year-old who smoked 40 a day all their lives. Yeah. And everyone knows of an athlete who's collapsed in the marathon. So there's all these kind of counterintuitive knowledges because you can't, and this has been a problem for the insurance industry since the very start, you cannot take 
the accident lock flaw out of what happens in individual life, insurers are all geared up towards insuring populations. Yeah, and I think that's really that's really crucial because I think um, I, I had a, a kind of a classic example of that, that that individual versus epidemiological kind of level thing is the sense in which that um, so uh, car seat belts um, the benefit to the individual uh, to most or to many individuals is is relatively minimal because you may not ever crash, um, but. And so the individual doesn't necessarily see any impact from keeping putting on their seatbelt every day. Um, but if if everyone does it, the on the population level, the you know the the, the injuries from um, from crashes plummets. Um, and so it, exactly, it's those two different lenses. But uh-huh. um, but but actually, also on that, just coming back to something you were saying that the use of wearables and fitness trackers has been it's been kind of uh, compared to. The use of uh, these uh, black boxes, um, people get put uh, having their car to, to track their uh, the way that they drive, and then that that affects their insurance premium pricing. Um, but especially from what you're saying, that that seems to be quite a nonsensical comparison, really, because um, of course individuals are relatively speaking tied to a car at least in, in, in a legal sense you can lend your car to someone who's not insured to drive it in theory or whatever but um individuals are in quite a legal sense tied to that tied to that car um and therefore to, to that box and so the it, it, it's not actually a very useful comparison that i wouldn't think would it, what, what would you say yeah i i i really agree with that i mean i think it, it's been used to make the comparison because the telematics um, devices in motor insurance have taken off. That is a mature, you know, it's a market that's maturing quite quickly. Yeah. And and it, I think you are likely to continue to see growth in that market. Mm. But there's a much smaller range of variables and things that can exactly. go wrong. Um, and there's a much closer connection between the types of things that telematics black boxes measure and your chances of an accident. There's a much closer correlation. So it's a it. it it's not like a closed loop, but it's a much more um, limited set of uh, factors that, that can go wrong. So although it sounds like a good comparison, okay, telematics boxes, car engines, people driving, getting a price. Um, wearable devices, people walking, sitting, running, mm-hmm. getting a price attached to that. But the relationship between walking, sitting, running and your risk of getting a serious disease it's much, much looser. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. this, what I'm wondering, because I've, I've looked at uh, recently, I was, I was just kind of browsing around, and there's uh, an insurance company, Vitality. Um, I think they're health and, and life insurance. And they're, yes. one, they're one of these companies who are um, doing some kind of uh, funny deal where you can um, buy a massively discounted uh, Apple Watch for sort of £60 or something. Um, and then you effectively pay it off through um depending on how many steps you take uh, so you know so you can uh, if you're take if you're or, or activity you're engaged in so if it tracks a certain amount of activity then you pay nothing per month and if you if you're doing a bit less then you you pay 10 pounds a month or, or whatever it is that's um, right but um and again so the, the, this to me this has this this veneer of there being this direct connection between your activity um 
and uh, and the pricing. But actually, I'm wondering if to what extent these things and and the same with with using sort of Fitbits and, and whatever else uh, in these kind of contexts is more of a kind of a marketing thing really than actually having any real impact on on the data, the insurance data. Uh, it's actually a way of hooking people in um, and of, of broadly encouraging this kind of healthy lifestyle in a very in quite a vague sense. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, so there's a kind of loose relationship, if you like, between price and promotion. The four P's of the marketing mix: price, promotion, place, and product. Um, are you know the marketing mix they're supposed to be connected you're supposed to think of them marketers are supposed to think of them at the same time okay but we have a tendency to split them up as if they are uh, quite distinct from each other now when we talk about price we have we kind of come to price with a basic understanding that price should be fairly universal you might get discounts for bulk purchase. You, there, there may be, you know, you may pay more for fuel in remote parts of the country than you do in urban parts. There, you know, we, we know there's some variations about price, but I don't think this debate has thought enough about the distinctions between promotion and price in the sense that the way the insurers are using these schemes is actually very similar to loyalty card type promotional schemes, which are also, you know, they're, they're one of the first examples of uh, commercial use of big data that mm. uh, Mike Savage and Roger Burrows were writing about whew, 10 years ago now. Yeah. Um, so th those schemes were tracking what people bought to send targeted offers back to them. Now, the use of these schemes like the Vitality Apple Watch scheme is similar, but it is a little bit different. You can't change the fact that what, um, what, the, what Vitality are trying to do with this is they are trying to encourage and foster certain sorts of behavior. Though you could say the um, Tesco Club card did exactly the same. Yeah. They tried to foster certain sorts of buying behavior. And they tried to target groups of people who had certain preferences, who bought certain combinations of um, products to buy other products. So, so they are quite similar in, in, in that sense. But I think that there's, there, there is still a slippage that takes place in terms of the assumption that the reason why insurers want you to do this is so that they can track your movements. I think insurers want to keep an eye on that market space. They want to they want to keep an eye on the technology and work out um, whether it can be done to really improve their risk profiling of people. But at the moment, what the technology is really doing for them is well, it might make people a bit healthier, and people are sort. Of, it is still a marketing gimmick. It may make people a bit healthier. It's unlikely to do any harm. And it's unlikely to cost them all that much because, I mean, the vitality scheme is interesting because although the, the targets that it sets for you to get a very cheap Apple Watch are not that high, you can't miss a day. Yeah. You can't, you, can't, you know, all it takes is to get the flu. 
and you're not going to make those targets. <laughs> and then the Apple Watch promotion is going to be le less attractive. Um, so I, I, I read a very, or I heard a very interesting paper by Liz Moore and Celia Lurie last year. I'm not sure that it's published yet, um, but it makes the case that what is often talked about as price personalization is really not quite there yet um, in the sense that the individualization of price, the idea of an individual being charged a different price on the basis of phenotype data, how they do all sorts of things, how much they move, what they eat, what they have in their fridge, um, is quite some distance away yet. So what they say is actually taking place is a form of grouping, a tar targeting of certain sorts of individuals. So it's really a, a individualization, personalization is the wrong word, really, because what you're actually getting is something more like niche targeted marketing, certain yeah. types of people who fit into a frame. So there's a social framing going on there rather than this intensely individual personalization down to an individual level. It's not at all clear it would be in companies' interest to actually be able to do that because, as you can imagine, to do that would be extraordinarily expensive. And if you want to stay in business, yes, you want to attract more market, but you also need to keep your costs down. And that's the kind of calculus that um, insurers are facing. It's not the more fine-grained risk classification could the benefit of it could never be realized. The issue is that the technologies and infrastructures you would need to get there would be extremely expensive at this point of time. And it's not clear whether the benefits would outweigh the costs. That's, yeah, that's, that's so, that's so interesting. And it's kind of uh, as well, really is in the long term, it, is the, that individual level really that useful? Because once you've that that, that individual has gone, um, what what are you left with? The, but if you've got types or groups of people, then you can kind of do something a bit more with that. And um, I realise I've kept you quite a long time, so I don't, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I did want to ask one thing, which is kind of related to what we've just been talking about, uh, and it's a, a, a couple of um, a, a couple of issues that kind of come together. Because as we've just been discussing. Um, the actual the technology of this it seems to be of kind of mixed utility or, or maybe some potential but may not lead to anything um, but it does seem to be broadly promoting this kind of um, this kind of attitude um, which some people have aligned with a kind of entrepreneurial or neoliberal approach to the self this kind of uh, um, kind of subject kind of person who is um, constantly trying to improve themselves, to to be better, uh, and is kind of entirely self reliant. Um, is that something which you which you see as being evident in in the kind of the broad discourse of the uh, of these insurance uh, dis, uh, health insurance discourses, um, and particularly through the, the the use of the data? Is that something that is being pushed? Would you say? I, I certainly think that, that there's a, an entrepreneurial approach to the self as has been in the ascendant mm. over the last at least two or three decades. And one of the things that amused me when I started reading about the Affordable Care Act was this 
um, establishment of a new responsibility to people to be as healthy as they can. Um, and it reminded me of a Scottish health education group slogan that was maybe even the, the late 80s or early 90s, which was Be All You Can Be, which was used to, you know, to promote healthy activity. And it also reminds me of the just do it Nike logic. Yeah. Um, you've got to get out there. You've got to run. But what, what I saw when I went to the U.S. in 2014 was a huge amount, you know, it's a very strange culture in the sense that nearly all the advertising you see seems to be health-related. Yeah. But there was a particular voice in that health-related advertising. Um, so it would show uh, people who had had extreme injuries. Um, so it may use the case about what, what would you do if a knee injury left you unable to walk? Marion didn't just sit there. She got out there and she um, fought it. It's like it's like the stories around uh, cancer. You need to fight. Yeah. It. You know, if you you're going to be or you can't be. Not everyone can uh, be a super athlete, but you can be all you can be, mm. and that you um, are responsible legislatively under the Affordable Care Act to do all you can to be as healthy as you can be, um, which fits very neatly with um, a lot of the wellness industries marketing, you know, um, how many different pairs of running shoes are available on the market, how many different kinds of tracker uh, running clothes, different types of fabrics and so forth. And that, of course, you know, just in the fitness and wellness industries, that's only one side of it. We, you know, there are other examples around education and um, financial management, um, and how you manage risk, you know, your levels of prudence. They all fit towards this entrepreneurial approach, which says, what basically says that what happens to the individual is up to the individual. Now, clearly, this doesn't fit very well with what we know as sociologists and social theorists about yeah. the level of um, difficulty that different individuals place differently in relation to the societies in which they live, what their life chances are. You know, since the Black Report in the 1980s, we've known yeah. um, very clearly that health inequalities mirror um, social inequalities. So putting all that responsibility in, onto the individual to change their health status, to change the kind of life they have. Um, and yes, I think what you're driving at is absolutely right, the, uh, to change their economic standing and their social standing. That the, if, they, if they really adopt this entrepreneurial approach, that the, they can do that. Anything is possible. You just have to do it. And that, that of course, relates to take us back all the way to the uh, Trump election, um, that takes us back to this kind of American idea about freedom and it's all down to the individual and that the state shouldn't be, the main job of the state is to stay out of individuals' business. Yeah. Um, There is that sort of stepping back from uh, social and political obligations 
to to uh, nurture the polity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's really yeah exactly. I, I've this is what this is making me think of. I've just been reading uh, Wolfgang Streeck's new uh, book, How Will Capitalism End? And um, what he I mean, he obviously has a very pessimistic the assumption is that capitalism is ending um a pessimistic kind of viewpoint on this but um he characterizes what we're living in is a state of social entropy in which basically society is is crumbling in terms of um being institutions of society um to look after us uh, or to support us in various ways and that what we're seeing is uh, he doesn't cite these things in particular but he's kind of talking about this kind of stuff i think um is attempts to align social character with the social structure, which of course has always happened, but it just so happens that obviously at the moment the social structure is such that there are basically no social structures to look at that look after you um, or to support you. Um, you're on your own. The only way to survive is through kind of um, is is to just do it, to be all you can be as an individual, to be monitoring, tracking, developing yourself. Um, and which, of course, is it, I, don't, I don't want to end on too much of a <laughs> on too much of a downer. But um, what this also made me think of was something that you you cite in in one of your papers, um, where you refer to Jacques Donzelot's, um idea that insurance is a technology that brings solidarity into operation. Um, so, if we're going to try to be positive, which I like to do at the end, uh, do you see any kind of potential in in insurance in in broad terms and that could be kind of the, whether that's going back to the kind of um state uh, social security social insurance system or whatever do you see a potential in insurance for um creating some kind of uh, um useful solidarity as opposed to just kind of saying that um our streak sees it it's it's total social uh, social kind of breakdown and you're on your own um everything's just down to you know your kind of um well that, that kind of american kind of picture that you painted is there something something else well, there? yeah i mean they, these are these are really difficult questions um and i think i think that the temptation at the minute to um just be borne down by the pessimism of it all is is something that we should we should resist um, and can resist. And one way to think about this is um, the contradiction, if you like, um, between in, in, in the American healthcare system, between the idea that this is a private, a, a, a healthcare system that runs on private health insurance. But uh, despite that, the American, American healthcare system has a massive level of public subsidy. Bigger, bigger than um, you will find in Europe. Now, that doesn't really kind of tell you anything about solidarity. The Affordable Care Act was definitely an attempt to use the mechanisms of the private health insurance industry to improve cost-sharing um, for healthcare across the population. Um, and it's hugely misunderstood that that, that that is the case, that this, this is the case of the state subsidising, even in a private health insurance system, the state heavily subsidise the cost of looking after the health of its citizens. 
Um, so what is really interesting there is the disconnect between political rhetoric, even about the most privatised health insurance system in developed nations, and the actual practice and the actual movement of public and private transfers. Now, whilst I I am not taking a strong position on whether or not it should be social insurance or private health insurance, I think actually when we don't have time to go into the uh, details for this, but there are problems in both systems. And I think even all across Europe, uh, and this is something that we are less familiar with in the UK because the NHS is tax-funded rather than an insurance-funded system. Um, but all across, all across Europe, you actually have a hybrid mix of public and private um, transfers going on in the provision of health care. And these are fundamentally solidarity-based uh, the question is whether or not we, I, I think the insurance technique provides the means um, to look, at, look after, share the costs across a population. And it is, yeah, I think this is the optimistic note. It is up to us to regulate and understand how we do this. And in a context of big data, that's more important than ever because I think Everyone is so under overwhelmed by the complexity of what's happening with data. What's the difference between primary and secondary uses? How do we keep our data secure and private? How do we share fairly in, in society? It's possible to be so overwhelmed by it that we think that the Silicon Valley of type logic of which data is a free-for-all. It's too late to protect privacy. The way we live now, posting everything about our lives on Facebook, privacy is gone. I think, in fact, it's possible to regulate differently. You know, we can decide what we want our insurance systems to work like. We can decide what the appropriate level of private and public um, mix is. For me, um, I don't really care who the deliverer of my NHS is. I care that it's free at the point mm. of use. That, ma that matters to me, that it's free at the point of use, which is not to say that I would welcome Virgin running my local GP. Um, but I think that we need to have an open and informed conversation about how we fund healthcare. We are in a world faced by, you know, growing, aging and sicker populations. Um, and governments are struggling all over to fund that. Mm. And in, in some sense, the fact that we have done so well in terms of increasing um, life expectancy is a real problem for, for healthcare systems because it's like this, it's unquenchable demand. Demand will... And in, in a way, the longer we live and the healthier we live, the more demand will increase in healthcare systems. Solving that is not an uncomplicated problem, and it's not a problem that um, forecasting the end of capitalism is going to solve, or or fighting for the end of capitalism is going to solve. You know, um, um, 
not being terribly utopian about this, but I think what I'm trying to argue is that um, we can arrange things differently. I'm a pragmatist. Mm. A sentiment, I describe myself as a sentimental pragmatist, which is meant to mean that I, I, I'm interested in uh, public mood. And I think the public mood around healthcare is not necessarily helping us design the best healthcare system because it's too polarised mm. between people who are terrified that the NHS is being privatised and people who are terrified that a public healthcare system can't can't survive. Yep. Where in fact we need to leave that to one side, I think, to work out well how how do we how do we harness big data to actually help us manage the provision and costs of healthcare. It is possible to do that, but my fear is that the, the polemic of political debate often gets in the way. So, um, I, you, you know, we, if you think about the care data story where, where there are people who are so anti any kind of sharing of personal data and there are other people who, who desperately want the sharing of personal data if it helps us understand disease. There needs to be a way of bringing these conversations together, um, so so that we can kind of regulate what kind of healthcare system we want, how do we want it to be funded, what level of individual contribution, and even in the UK we make individual contributions when we pay prescription charges. Um, how do we want to have? Um, what models of consent do we want to have? It is possible to arrange things. Insurance is just a technology. It's just, it, you know, you can mobilize it for private gain and you can mobilize it for the social good. And it's possible to, to arrange it differently and regulate it differently. There isn't an insurance system in the world that is not regulated. They're all regulated. So how yeah. do we want to regulate yeah. it? How do we want it to use big data? It is possible to imagine differently and that is difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to sustain that in these challenging times. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm happy with that. That's good. That, that that's that's positive enough for me, definitely. But <laughs> uh, 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 and but also, I think actually the, the the very very last point you've made it, it is vital, which is it is possible to imagine things differently. And t to me, that's one of the most fundamental aspects of what doing sociology is about. Um, is that things can things can be different and we as human beings who live in societies are involved in shaping society whether we realize it all the time or not um and that we we can we can try to shape things um in ways that are better for us whatever that looks like and we can disagree on various things uh you know around that is it, something else but um yeah um but yeah i'd just like to say um Thank you so much uh, for talking to me. It's been really, really interesting and um, uh, absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to um, seeing how um, how the rest of your research uh, develops in the future as well. Thanks so much, Chris. I think that you've summed that up beautifully at the <laughs> end there. There is nothing inevitable about a data surveillance society. No. Uh, and that's what we have to hold on to. Yeah, uh, yeah I really enjoyed the chat. Good, good. I uh, uh, hope, to, hope to speak to you soon as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, bye. Bye.
Great, so that's it. If there's any comments you've got about the things we've discussed in the podcast, then you can get me on at Chris H. Till on Twitter, and you can find Liz at All Art Markets on Twitter. Also, you can find my blog at thisisnotasociology.blog, and there are also uh, links to some of the things we've discussed uh, in this episode on there as well. The theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco. The incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78, and they're both used on a Creative Commons license. And the episode was written, edited, produced, and presented by me. See you next time.